Good morning. Thank you for standing. Our passage this morning is chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 6. Follow along with me, if you would. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you so much. You can be seated. How about now? There we go. Wasn't all the way over. That's the problem. So, Buna Dimiatza is how you say uh, good morning in uh, Romania. And, uh, and so, uh, as Carl said, uh, we had a portion of our team that just got back uh, from being over there. So, Carl, myself, and Carl's son, Taylor, just got back on, uh, on Thursday from spending about uh, eight days over there. We actually have the rest of our team, the Hallbrooks, the Sineses, and the Edgemans, who are probably somewhere over the Arctic sort of circle right now. And uh, so you can be praying for them as they're on their way uh, back. But it was a great time. Uh, one of the things that we got to experience over there was the fact that uh, we don't speak Romanian. And, uh, and so Romanians know that, and they enjoy playing pranks on us uh, in light of that. And so at one point, Carl was having a conversation uh, with, uh, with a translator over there and kind of asking, what's the difference between Buna Dim and Yatza? And then how do you say good afternoon and good evening? So they were telling all of the different ways of saying, depending upon what time of the day it is. And a pastor walks up and says, hey, listen, you don't need to learn all of those different things. There's one saying that you can learn, and that's it. That will apply to any time of the day or whatever. And so Carl's like, what is this magical saying? I want to know this. I don't want to memorize, you know, six different things. I want to memorize just one. And so he said, the only thing you have to remember is Sunt Chokan. If you just say Sunt Chokan in any context, uh, that will work. And uh, immediately there's giggling around. And, uh, and Carl's a pretty sharp guy. And so he immediately realizes, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't mean whatever you're telling me it means. It actually means I am a hammer. <laughs> Which, so apparently this guy thought it'd be funny if Carl just walks up to people all day long and just says, I am a hammer. Uh, and, and so uh, anyway, it was a great, uh, a great time there in, uh, in Romania. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, we have a long history here at Parkway of serving uh, the people of Romania. And so we have a partnership with a number of churches over there. They've been doing that. Uh, I think uh, that uh, Betty Signs went over there 17 years ago and has consistently been going since then. And, uh, and so not only does Parkway have a partnership there, but some of you also know uh, that my heart is tethered to that place. That was the first place I ever went overseas in 2004. My first mission trip, my first time to ever preach. I was terrified uh, preaching uh, there in a Romanian church. And so I've gotten to go back a number of times, but always to Western uh, Romania, which is where Transylvania is. So I think vampires and that kind of stuff. This is Eastern Romania. There's less vampires over there. And uh, so it's my first time to get to check out Bucharest. We had a great uh, visit with some of the pastors. They're doing really good uh, work there. And I think next week, uh, Jerry will share a little bit more uh, on that. But certainly want to continue to pray for that partnership. And, uh, and so uh, on 
the last day uh, that uh, my team was over there, uh, I got all morning with uh, one of the uh, pastors at a church in Bucharest, one of the oldest churches, most sort of influential churches there in the area, and this guy was a complete stud. I mean, just uh, theologically aligned really well with us, which is uh, kind of like looking for a unicorn, especially overseas and so forth. And so this guy, I was just was so excited to get to spend two hours with him over coffee. And then he brought me back to the hotel, and the rest of our team was out in the villages, and they were doing ministry out there. So I had a couple of hours to myself. Uh, so I spent a little bit of time working on the sermon, and then I spent a little bit of time just walking. And, uh, and so I got to go just walk around the caress, see the sights and so forth. And that's one of my favorite things to do overseas. I don't know if you've had a chance to be overseas or to be in a historic city like New York or Philadelphia or Boston or something like that. But when I go to one of those cities, I just love to explore. I just love to uh, walk. Uh, my previous church uh, had a fitness competition uh, one time whereby they took the entire staff and anybody who wanted to participate uh, got an opportunity to do so and you got on a team of four people. And, uh, and then your goal was at the end of three months to see which team could have the most steps, which team would walk the most number of uh, steps. And so some of you don't know this, some of you do know this, but I'm a hyper-competitive person. That is how, uh, that was like my love language when I was growing up. That was the only way that my dad and I, in certain seasons of our life, that was the only way that we could relate. So we couldn't talk to each other or anything like that because we butted heads because I was stubborn. Um, but... Uh, we could play sports together. And uh, so my dad, my brother, and I would have all kinds of crazy contests, stand on the bank of the Rio Grande and see who could throw the rock the furthest into Mexico or whatever it is. I could turn anything into a game, which uh, was one of the reasons I found myself trying to throw grapes in Jerry Holbrook's uh, uh, shirt pocket, which I made it on the second shot. And uh, so banked it right off his peck, and so that was real fun. Uh, but I can turn anything into a game, and so whenever this uh, previous church was having this competition, I was all in. And, uh, and so uh, we were, uh, my team was in the lead, uh, but there was this other team that was really coming on strong, partly because there was one guy in particular who is, uh, I mean, he's my competitiveness times 10. And so what he would do is he would help his uh, wife put the kids to bed at 8 o'clock, then he would go to the gym and he would stay there till midnight. He would do that every night, just on a treadmill from 8.15 or whenever he got there till midnight. And, uh, and so his team was gradually making uh, its uh, way up to us and so forth. And so I decided at one point, I had a day off, uh, Casey was working at the time, and uh, she had something later in the afternoon. So I kind of had an entire day to myself, and I decided uh, I wanted to see how many steps I could get. Plus, I wanted to kind of crush the spirits of this other team. <laughs> And so uh, I just decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend all day walking. And so the night before, I laid out clothes. Uh, I laid out my shoes. I laid out um, like uh, energy bars and bottles of water all in a uh, backpack. That way, when I woke up, I literally got dressed. I brushed my teeth, uh, washed my face, and I walked to the gym, two miles to the gym, uh, walked there. Uh, I downloaded movies on my iPad uh, so that I could just walk on a treadmill and watch uh, two movies in a row. And I didn't stop until 10.45 that night. I got uh, over 82,000 steps that day, which is over 40 miles. And uh, so most people don't walk that far. I tell you this story, even though I know the staff and probably some of you are going to text me something like, I got 40 uh, miles, I walked 40,000 miles, hashtag humble brag or something like that. 
But it's a really good analogy for our passage this morning, which is going to be this metaphor that Paul gives for walking. Walking is this way of life uh, for us. And so I wanted to share that story to get us thinking about this intentionality, this passion, uh, this planned, purposeful pursuit of this lifestyle. And the imagery, the metaphor that Paul uses for it is, uh, is walking. So let's see how that develops in the text. But before that, let's take a moment and uh, pray. I want to ask first that you just pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. We all come in with distractions or hopes or plans or whatever it might be. And so ask the Lord just to give you, for this next 45 minutes or so, clarity, kind of unity of thought and affections. And then pray for those around you that the Lord would do the same for them. And then I'd ask you to pray for uh, the rest of the Romanian team just as they're flying back right now for the Lord's provision and grace and transportation for their rest and getting readjusted. And then lastly, pray for me. The Lord would help me to be faithful to his word and take the things that I've studied and empower them that they might be profitable and fruitful for us as a people. So Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to see uh, the beauty of this word this morning, Lord, that you would use it to unify us as a body and that we might uh, more look like you and love each other. And so help us, we ask, because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start in uh, Ephesians 4, starting in verse uh, 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we're now about halfway through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters. We finished three of them, so we're halfway through this passage is really interesting because it marks not only a half point, a halfway point in the text, uh, but also it begins to represent a transition in the way that Paul is writing. And so up to this point, uh, we have seen something called an indicative, and moving out from here, we'll see Paul begin to use more and more and more what's called uh, an imperative. And so up to this point, we've seen a lot of uh, indicatives. We're going to move into a period where there's much more uh, of this thing called an imperative. What are those words? What do those words mean? One indicative verb, uh, think of it uh, like this. An indicative verb just indicates a reality. It indicates a truth. It indicates a fact. Christ died for you is an indicative. The Father loves you. These are indicatives. Chapters 1 through 3 are saturated with them. This is the primary way that Paul communicates in chapters 1 through 3. The verbs that he used there are all indicatives. You have been blessed. You have been predestined. You have been redeemed, reconciled, and sealed. You were dead. Paul gives things. Paul was made a minister. All of these are indicatives. But in chapter 4, we'll begin to see a transition from the indicative to the imperative. From what God has done, the indicative, to what we are to do as a response to what God has done, which is the imperative. An imperative is a command or a request or a desire. 
An indicative kind of concerns what has been done. An imperative concerns what should be done in light of that. And whereas uh, chapters 1 through 3 are saturated with indicatives, chapters 4 through 6 are going to be saturated by imperatives. Speak the truth with each other. Be angry and do not sin. Be kind to one another. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. These are all imperatives. So you're going to see this transition in the text, not only today, but as we move forward over the next few weeks, from indicatives, what God has done, to imperatives, what we are to do in light of what God has done. You see, theology, our theology always has a so what. There's always implication, there's always applications to the truths that we see in God's Word. But oftentimes we, as a culture, we want the so what without the what. We want the what do I do with it without actually knowing what God's Word says first. The problem with that, though, is that you can't divorce imperatives from their underlying indicatives. For example, if I were to say, your wife is in labor, therefore go to the hospital, you get how the indicative, your wife is in labor, is the fuel or the power for therefore go to the hospital. You don't just go to the hospital any time of the day for no reason whatsoever. There's a reason that you go to the hospital. Or if I were to say, you have a job, therefore go to your place of employment. Likewise, if you no longer have a job there and you still go, you're going to have the police called because you are quote-unquote disgruntled, right? And so the indicative is what's going to fuel, what's going to empower the imperative. What God has done is what then leads us into how we are to respond. In other words, the imperative is going to be compelling because of the indicative. The indicative gives the power. Likewise, as we read chapters 4 through 6 over the next few weeks, as we read this, we need to bear in mind that they are coming on the back of all of the beautiful theology of chapters 1 through 3. 4 through 6 only work because of what goes before it in uh, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 are the power, the fuel for all that Paul's going to say in uh, chapters 4 through 6. So let me give you kind of a biblical example of this. Think of the Old Testament. Think of the Old Testament. In Israel, there is on the cusp of the Promised Land, about to enter into the Promised Land. They're there at the Jordan River. They have sent over spies into the land. The spies come back. They say the land is absolutely glorious, and God says, go forth into the land, and I will be with you, and you are to conquer the land. And the people say, the land, the land is beautiful, but the people are really tall. And so they rebel, they complain, and then God says, well, therefore, as a result of this, you're going to wander in the wilderness. And then what does Israel do? If you know the story, you know, Israel then decides, okay, now we'll go. Now we'll go over into the land. And they go over into the land, and what happens? They're defeated. Why? Because no longer is the indicative true. No longer is God with them. God is not with them, and so therefore they cannot conquer. Likewise, we can't do these imperatives without the indicative, without all that goes before it in chapters 1 through 3. <clears throat> so what we're talking about here is this beginning of the imperative, the beginning of our response to what God has done in uh, chapters 1 through 3. That's why Paul is going to begin this by saying, I therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, it reaches all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1. In light of all of this, in light of everything that Paul has written in chapters 1 through 3, therefore begin to implement, begin to do, begin to respond in these ways in chapters 4 through 6. In light of your election, 
in light of your redemption, in light of your union with Christ, in light of your union with each other, in light of the fact that you've been made alive, that you've been joined together into a new temple and one body, in light of all of this, therefore, Paul exhorts us in this particular way. And this is really interesting because this construction, this grammatical construction that uh, Paul does here in Ephesians matches something that he does a couple of other times in Scripture where he will uh, give an exhortation. He'll give a therefore followed by an exhortation. So let me give you one of my favorite examples of that, uh, which is in the book of Romans. Like Ephesians, a Romans, Romans is going to have this distinct structure to it. It's going to have this distinct way that Paul writes, whereby the first, uh, more than half of the book, two-thirds of the book, it's just filled with indicatives, what God has done. And the latter part of the book is filled with imperatives, starting in chapter 12. And so if you were to read chapter 12, you will see list of command after command after command after command. But immediately before that, he has this exhortation in Romans 12:1, which is very similar to what we read there in Ephesians 4. Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's really fascinating about this is the immediately preceding context. So if you were to back up one page in your Bible, back up one little swipe on your phone or whatever it might be, and look what immediately precedes this exhortation that he gives in Romans 12.1, you'll see this in Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Uh, Amen. Now you might, if you were here last week, you might recognize that construction as being a doxology, a word of praise. So it's, it's really interesting that Romans, like Ephesians, has indicative, 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 indicative. And then it has doxology, this word of praise where it's almost like Paul is overwhelmed by the theology of what he's writing and he busts out into worship with his pen. And then he goes into this exhortation and then he goes into imperatives, commands, requests, desires that God has made for us. We see this movement throughout Scripture a number of places, not only in Ephesians and Romans, but this constant sort of movement in Scripture where theology is going to produce worship, which then overflows into actions. It begins in the head, it stirs the heart, and then it moves the hands and the feet to be able to follow after the Lord, which is why you can never separate the head from the heart. A lot of churches that do that today, they try to separate the head from the heart. Biblically, you can't separate the head from the heart, that your theology is always going to be the ceiling to your worship. But your theology is also going to be the ceiling for your ability to be faithful to God's commands. Because how do you know that you're being faithful to what God has actually commanded you unless you understand theologically what he has asked of you? So Paul begins with this exhortation there in Ephesians 4.1. What is the exhortation? What does he tell us? He exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. To walk worthily which is picking up the imagery from chapter 2, if you remember we talked about that, as you once walked in death, that we once, it was, we were the walking dead in chapter 2, as you once walked 
in death, in darkness. So now walk in a new way. Learn how to walk uh, in a, uh, a new way. And this will then become a major theme, a major image, uh, sort of a dominant motif throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. We'll see it again in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this exhortation for us to walk, which is a Jewish sort of idiom, an expression, a metaphor for conduct yourselves, live your life. When he's saying walking there, he's not talking in particular about uh, your ability to walk. He's talking about your ability to live, your ability to conduct yourself. Conduct yourself in a worthy manner. This, this phrase, uh, walk in a worthy manner, it reminds me of, uh, of a scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan. This is a spoiler alert. If you've been like on the cusp of seeing it for 19 years, just never gotten around to it. Uh, so Matt Damon, uh, at the end of the movie, he has been saved by Tom Hanks and his platoon. They have sacrificed themselves. They put themselves at great risk in order to save Matt Damon. They finally do so. And then Tom Hanks tells him, right before Tom Hanks passes away, he looks at him and he says, earn this, earn this, live your life, the rest of your life, you're a young man, live your life in such a way as to earn this. Now, you and I don't ever earn God's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's even demerited favor. We've already unearned it. But there is a sense in which we conduct ourselves accordingly. In light of what God has done, we are to live in a certain way, and that's what Paul is saying God has called you into all of these truths of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. In light of all of this, live accordingly. Sanctification for Paul is like physical therapy. It's learning how to walk again. You once walked in a particular way, so now walk in this new way. Verses 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So what does it mean? Whenever he tells us to walk worthily, to walk in a suitable manner, to live accordingly, what, is, what does that mean? How do we do that? And Paul begins to clarify for us by kind of developing certain virtues, if you will. The things that Paul lists out here are kind of like physical therapy. They are the exercises that we're to do to relearn how to walk. If you want to learn how to walk worthily, these are the exercises that we are to practice. One of my fears as I uh, left for Romania was that uh, my little girl, uh, Larkin, who's about 13 months, was that she would learn how to walk while I was gone. She's like right on the cusp of learning how to walk. And so I was fearful that I would miss her first steps. You know, that's kind of a, a, a big watershed moment uh, for, a, uh, for a kid and for a parent especially. And, uh, and so she is right on the cusp. She loves to, uh, she has a little walker that we got her uh, for uh, uh, recently. And, uh, and so she loves to walk with that. She loves if you put down your fingers like this, she loves to just take hold of them and to kind of stumble along through the house. One of her favorite things to do is for my wife Casey and I to sit about three feet apart or so 
and she'll take one step and then just kind of fall into our arms. Uh, and we love it, and she loves it. She loves it more than we do because she never wants to stop. She wants to do it over and over and over again. She's so eager to learn how uh, to walk. And the word eager here in this connotation, in this context, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, it, it carries the connotation in Greek of practice. That's what it means there. In English, it's an adjective, but in Greek, it's a verb which occurs 11 other times in the New Testament, and it's translated elsewhere as do your best. If you're reading the ESV, one particular uh, place translates as do your best. Another one is strive. Another one is be diligent. Another one is make every effort. It's this word spadazzo. Being eager means practicing, desiring, yearning, diligently striving for, aiming toward. There's blood, there's sweat in this word. It's not merely a disposition of the heart or the mind, which eagerness kind of connotes, but it's a posture, it's pursuit, it's a purpose and planned endeavor. That's what it means to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. As I kind of made plans and provision for my sort of marathon day of walking, that's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, Walking in a manner worthy, make provision to do so. And notice what he says that we are to practice. What are these virtues that we are to cultivate as we learn to walk in a manner worthy? It's not what I would think. When I think about this, walk in a manner worthy, I tend to think of vertical sins and vertical virtues. But what Paul mentions are more horizontal. They're more having to do in this context with how we relate to each other within the church. Not just how we relate to God, but how we relate relate to each other within the church, which is this theme that we've seen over and over and over again in Ephesians where Paul is emphasizing the importance of unity within the body of Christ. That as we've seen time and again, the gospel is not merely a message of vertical reconciliation, being made right with God, but also horizontal reconciliation, being made right with each other. Since we're united not only to God, but to each other, therefore, we're to pursue these virtues, humility, gentleness, and patience. From a Roman cultural perspective, standpoint, as Paul is writing this, each of these Uh, sort of virtues, humility, gentleness, and patience, would not have been considered virtues. They would have actually been considered vices within that particular context. And uh, for us, in our context here in America, I could say the same thing. By and large, these are not considered strengths outside of the church and kind of Christianese or something like that. For someone to be humble and gentle and patient is not considered uh, to be something that is uh, terribly... uh, virtuous or something, especially here in Texas, everything's kind of bigger and better. We don't need others. We don't need community. We don't need neighbors. In fact, if you moved into McKinney in the 1840s, you got one square mile of land, so you didn't ever have to see your neighbors. By the way, when you move to McKinney now, you no longer get that, unfortunately. But that is sort of the context that we're born into, this context of independence, not knowing or not uh, needing any others, and not only our culture, but our flesh. Our flesh feeds off of this same lie. Our flesh longs for the opposite of these. We naturally long for pride, for privilege, for immediacy, rather than humility or gentleness or patience. 
And so these virtues, because they're not natural to us, they're not natural uh, to our flesh, to our culture, and so forth, these are things that we have to practice. We have to relearn how to walk. We need to be eager to practice over and over and over and over again. Think of the beginning of Forrest Gump. Spoiler alert, the braces come off, all right? So think of those sorts of uh, braces that he has on his legs and eventually that moment of freedom where the braces come off. What the Bible says is there's no moment for you and I where the braces ever come off. That God's grace to us is that brace that is helping us to relearn how to walk. That we are born with this natural limp and that God's grace in reconciling us not only to himself but to each other is the brace that's going to correct our stride and help us to run toward him. And so for this reason, because of all of this, we should be eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That we don't make unity, we maintain it. Christ has done it. We simply are to keep it. When I was a kid, for Christmas one year, I got this real sweet uh, bike. It was this blue and red uh, bike with a little bit of yellow trim on it. And it was a Superman bike. It has the Superman signal on it and so forth. It had a little speaker built into it. And whenever I would press a button, it would play the Superman theme song. I flew through my neighborhood. Uh, that would be what would, uh, would be going on. And I was like 16. No, not, I'm not really. I was, like, I was like six or so. And as kids tend to do, I tried to do tricks. Now, I, I was not very good at tricks, but I could at least learn how to hop a curb or something like that. But I decided, as kids tend to do, that I wanted to make a ramp. Now, some of you future engineers, uh, you know, kind of evil Knievel sort of uh, people, you built these elaborate ramps as a kid, maybe, you know, and it could hold like an armored tank division. Mine would not have held like a, a matchbox car or whatever, uh, but I tried anyway. I would go and get these uh, real flimsy pieces of flywood, plywood that were much too thin to even hold the weight of my bike, much less me on it. And I would put it, and I would stack these stack of bricks uh, there, and I would fly toward it. And I had these visions, kind of of uh, E.T., spoiler alert, there's a scene where Elliot kind of flies across the moon, and I thought, that is going to be me. Instead, I would find myself flying across the concrete and uh, skidding and uh, skinning myself up uh, because I would immediately hit the ramp, and then the bricks would just give way because there's no mortar in between them. And, uh, and so in my ignorance, uh, I did not know how to make a ramp. And so that is the image that I get for this sort of idea of the bond of peace. Without mortar, bricks aren't going to hold. Likewise, division in humanity is not overcome without the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We've talked about this before, that you can't politic division out of mankind, that you can't legislate division out of mankind. This is a gospel issue. This is a work of the Spirit to unite us. That Jesus has not only made peace, but he himself is our peace. He is the glue that holds people together. There's true opportunity in light of what Jesus has done for the Jew and the Gentile to be reconciled, for man and woman to be reconciled, for rich and poor, and on and on and on. And By the way, this is one of the reasons that here at Parkway we don't have affinity-based ministries. We don't have like particular studies for men who like to ride Harleys with handlebar mustaches while wearing leather vests or women who knit sweaters for cats or something like that. Why? Because uh, A, because those things are silly, 
uh, but B, because we already have something in common. We don't need these extemporaneous uh, or external peripheral things in common. We have something in common that's much more valid than your hair color or your profession or whatever it might be. We have the common bond of the Spirit. We have the common bond of faith. We have the common bond of the same King, the same Father. So you might think of the gospel as the glue that bonds us together. Of all places, among all people, the church should be a picture of unity and of peace, especially in light of what Paul writes next. Let's look in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let's stop for just a second and just count there the references to unity, the explicit references to unity. There's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one Father. Seven, seven different aspects of unity listed here, one after another, to really emphasize unity. In next week's passage, we'll see diversity within the body, but diversity, he only wants us to understand diversity in light of unity. We have to understand unity first before we can get the importance and beauty and glory of diversity and so forth. And we take, especially if we grew up in the church, we might take a lot of these for granted, the fact that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We might take these for granted, but in Paul's context that he's writing to in Ephesus, these ideas are radical. They're absolutely radical for him. Remember from our first sermon in the book that Ephesus was the site of the great temple of Artemis. That in fact, the city's entire commerce was dependent upon idol worship. That there was this huge idol trade, the, the manufacturing of, of, of books of magic and so forth. And so whenever the gospel uh, comes to Ephesus, uh, the entire industry begins to fall apart. It grinds to a halt there. So in this context, for Paul to say there is one spirit and one God would have been absolutely crazy. Furthermore, the claim to only have one Lord, from both a Roman and Jewish perspective, this would have been very offensive. Romans would have balked because you're saying, and saying there's one Lord, you're saying now no longer is Caesar Lord. Jews would have said in saying that there's one Lord and that Lord is Jesus, are you somehow equating Jesus with Yahweh? Both of them would have been terribly offended by this radical idea. Again, these are sort of bold assertions by Paul that we shouldn't just skip over as if it's so obvious that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so forth. By the way, notice also, uh, I think, Tim brought this out a little bit in his passage last week, but notice also kind of the little hints of Trinitarianism here in this passage. This is one of those passages uh, where it's just kind of these subtle references uh, to Trinitarianism where he says there's one Lord talking of Jesus, there's one God talking of the Father, there's one Spirit talking of uh, the Spirit. It's Trinitarianism that's going to distinguish Christianity from all the cults and all the world religions and so forth. Uh, we, we've taught on Trinitarianism before, but actually in August, in our theological equipping class, we're going to go back over and really explore Trinitarianism in depth. So I'd encourage you to link up with us uh, whenever those classes start up. 
But back to the text, these seven reasons that he lists, because of all these different aspects of unity, all these things that we share in common, all of these things that are common to each of us in the body of Christ, in light of all of these, we are to pursue unity. We're to pursue unity in the light of the unity that we already possess. In other words, we're to practically pursue what is already theologically true. And as I was thinking about this, the best analogy that I could think of is uh, marriage. When you get married, the instant that you get married, you become one flesh with your spouse. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. You're united. You're bound together in this sort of one flesh uh, reality, this mystery uh, that, that uh, the Bible talks about. But does that now mean that you can simply rest? Does that simply mean, okay, we're one flesh, so therefore we don't have to do anything to pursue each other? We don't have to do anything to pursue harmony and love and unity? Of course not. The fact that it's theologically true doesn't mean practically that there are not certain things that we need to do to cultivate that reality in our lives. Likewise, in the church, we need to practically cultivate unity as a body. Even though it's theologically true, just like in uh, marriages, some marriages, uh, most marriages will probably weather seasons where it feels like you're just kind of disconnected, you're disoriented, you're not quite relating to each other, you kind of feel like mere roommates, and in those seasons, the solution is never apathy. The solution is never to walk apart or to just agree to not see each other or anything like that. The, the solution is to walk together, to fight all the harder in those seasons, likewise, when it comes to the church, although this is theologically true that we are united, we are to intentionally, purposefully, passionately pursue each other in relationship, to be not content walking apart or away from each other, but to walk toward another in humility, patience, gentleness, and love. So likewise, for all these reasons that Paul just mentioned, the church is united. All of these nuances of unity are true, and yet this is something that we have to fight for. Just as you won't naturally drift toward unity and harmony and love in your marriage, you're not going to naturally drift towards these things within the context of the church. If you're not actively pursuing unity, then you're passively allowing disunity. So why is this emphasis, this past couple of weeks and uh, the past couple of chapters, Paul's been emphasizing unity, unity within the church, why is this so essential for us to see. And so I want to answer that question because I think if we're to understand the overarching theology of the book of Ephesians, if we're to understand ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, we need to understand why Paul is so passionate about there not being disunity and division within the church. And I think the reason is because division is the essence of sin. I think we all get naturally... We get the idea, if we've, we've grown up in church at all, I think we get that the, that the gospel is the cure for our separation between God. But I think what is often overlooked or ignored is that the gospel is also the cure for our horizontal division as well, and that division is the essence of sin. Sin always creates division. That's what sin does. What do I mean by that? Imagine dropping something valuable. You drop something valuable and it cracks, it breaks. Likewise, when mankind fell, there is this fracture that takes place. And everything that's evil enters in through that fracture. 
But biblically, there's not just one fracture. There's actually at least four different fractures. It's often called the fourfold division of the fall. The fourfold division of the fall. So let's talk about those four dimensions. Those four dimensions to the crack that occurs when mankind sins. First, there is this fracture between God and man. That's what we naturally think of. Man hides from God. He experiences spiritual separation as a holy God cannot dwell among holy men. That's what we tend to think of as a consequence of the fall, and rightly so. It's the biggest piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. But as a result of this fracture, as a result of this separation, that between God and man, there's condemnation, there's shame, there's damnation, there's guilt, there's death. But there's also a second rupture that takes place. If you're reading uh, Genesis 3 carefully, there's a fracture that takes place between man and woman. Note how immediately Adam begins to blame his wife. He says he blames that woman you gave me. And the curse results in tension and strife between husband and wife. As a result, there's divorce, adultery, abuse, bitterness, resentment, etc. And third, not only is there a division between God and man and also between man and his spouse, but there is this division that exists between man and creation. No longer will creation yield its fruit easily, but in thorns and thistles we labor. As a result, there's poverty, famine, floods, earthquakes, etc., And fourth, lastly, there's this division between man and his fellow man. Within one generation, Cain kills Abel. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, Scripture says, quote, that the earth is filled with violence. As a result, there's war, injustice, murder, rape, assault, etc. This is the fourfold fracture of the fall. That man is separated not only from God, but from each other, from our spouses, from creation itself. For For this reason... We have to understand the gospel is a much bigger perspective than just reconciling you to God. Yes and amen, the gospel is the only hope for reconciliation between you and God. But it's not just God's plan to reconcile your relationship with Him. It's His plan for making all things right, for making all things new. It's the message of a king that's coming into a kingdom where there's no longer any opposition at all because He's over all and through all and in all. As we begin to kind of transition into a closing, I want to kind of come back to the image of my daughter learning to walk. Even though she's super eager to learn how to walk and she loves to do it all day long, she'll just walk and walk and walk and walk. She still needs help. We can't just let her go on her own. She can stand for maybe two seconds or so and then she tumbles down. I think yesterday she cried about five times because she bumped her head because she's so eager and yet she can't do it on her own. She needs a walker. She needs hands to hold on to or someone into whose arms she might fall. Likewise, in a spiritual sense, if we're to do what Paul tells us to do, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we need help. We can't do it on our own. In a sense, we're like my daughter, but we're never going to grow out of that. We need the Spirit. We need others or holding on for a walker or falling into the arms of others, no matter if you've been walking with Christ for one day or for seven decades or whatever it might be, we need each other. I think that, that most of us growing up in, in uh, the context that we have, most of us probably think of maturing as kind of this process of, uh, I'm, I'm teaching myself how to fish. I'm learning how to be self-sufficient. 
Whereas biblically, I think what maturity is, is not recognizing that you're self-sufficient. It's recognizing that you're mutually dependent, that we need each other, that we need others to take our hands and to walk alongside us, that the goal of maturing is not independence, but it's love and gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with one another in harmony and so forth. And so as we close, I want to give you a few questions uh, to consider. And I want to ask you to do something uh, with these. I want to exhort you. I want to challenge you in a particular way. Oftentimes we take these questions and we just think of these questions as being opportunities for us between us and God. It's just kind of a personal exercise of introspection or whatever it might be. And I want to encourage you in light of what we've talked about to not just keep this between you and God, but to invite others into this process of inspecting yourself, examining yourself. And so I want to encourage you in this way. Maybe you have an opportunity to take somebody out to lunch today and to walk through some of these questions. Or maybe you and your spouse as you drive home, especially those of you who are commuting from someplace, you have an opportunity to talk to your spouse about this or have a couple over for dinner later this week or take a, uh, someone else out for coffee and wrestle through these together. Be honest before them with where you're lacking and where the Lord's pressing on your heart in light of these sorts of things. So let me give you the questions that I want you to just wrestle with. We'll put them up on the screen so you can read them. First question, are you generally humble, gentle, and patient? Be honest with yourself. Hopefully be honest with others as well. But are you generally humble, gentle, and patient? Second, in what circumstances or context are you less humble, gentle, and patient? Whether that's traffic or work or parenting or marriage or whatever it might be. In what circumstances or context are you less humble, gentle, and patient? Do you generally justify or overlook those contexts, those circumstances, or do you recognize them as areas needing repentance? Do you lament the fact that in traffic or at work or with your spouse that you tend to be less patient or less humble or less gentle? Are there people in your life, speaking of humility, are there people in your life who know absolutely everything about you? Or do you keep some sins and some struggles and some weaknesses hidden away? Are there others in the church with whom you have conflict, bitterness, or resentment? And have you done ev everything in your power to pursue reconciliation with them? Or are you just passively hoping that it'll go away? And then lastly, how are you actively pursuing unity within the church? So again, my encouragement to you would be to begin to explore your own heart in these things. And sometime over the next day or week or whatever it might be to invite others into this wrestle uh, with you for the, your uh, for your good, for God's glory, for the joy of the church. Let's pray as we ready ourselves for communion. Father, I thank you again for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would continue uh, to do uh, what we cannot do in our own strength, of our own accord. Lord, we we can't uh, see unity and uh, harmony and love, but because of your spirit, because of your grace to us, Lord, we have an opportunity because of the work of your son to experience these uh, sorts of things and for you to really transition us and help us, Lord, to relearn how to walk, Lord, how to walk with humility and gentleness and patience and love in light of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. And so I pray individually and corporately 
that you might uh, stir our hearts, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.